and we will especially um, consider the words of verse 45 and 46 uh, of this passage. I'll read it here from the New King James. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are commanded to remember the Lord's death until he comes as believers. The Lord himself told his apostles to do that, and Paul reiterates it in the New Testament. It's obviously a source of great blessing and transformation to our faith when we consider the Lord's death until he comes. There are many things that Christ could have set in his church for us to continually remember, but this is the one that's bound and revealed in a sacrament for us to constantly return to, to recalibrate our souls, to have our souls renewed, and to see afresh with our dull and blind eyes, even as Christians, who God is and what he has done for us. We are to remember this death, and whether this morning you are in Christ, or whether you are indifferent, whether you believe and with your whole love of your heart have set your faith upon Christ, or whether to you these things are like a root out of dry ground and you don't understand them, and you have heard many times, Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died, and it doesn't hit your heart. I want to say to you that this event is the most important event that has ever happened. It's the most important event in history, even above the very creation of everything that exists. This is the event on which the whole of world history pivots, and this is the event on which your own eternal condition rests. That's how important it is to you. Whether you believe or don't believe, or whether you are old or young, whether you are successful or unsuccessful, no matter where you are from or who you are, as a person made in the image of God, your entire eternal destiny rests on how you view this event. And you will view it one of those two ways, as amazing and central and as the only thing that can save you, or as something that is a, a grief to your own soul to even hear about. This event is beyond us. I'm not going to fully explain this event to you today, because it is beyond us. It is deeper than us. It is far above us. It is impossible to fully grasp the content of these verses. But we must grapple with them a little, because they're in Scripture, and therefore are good. And if we want to know the Lord, we have to know Him here, where He is fully revealed, and where His heart is truly laid bare. The professor of theology in the RP Seminary in Northern Ireland, Frederick Leahy, uh, who lived a couple of generations ago, uh, was enamored with the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote extensively about the cross. And this is what he said about this. If our meditation of the cross is meager, how can our love for the Savior ever be great? If your sight of the cross is a superficial glimpse and something that doesn't grip you and take hold of your life, if it's not something that you long to penetrate into and understand, if your glimpse of the cross is superficial, then your love for the Savior must, by fact, be superficial too. And the depth in which you long to know what happens here 
will correspond to the love that is growing and stretching and strengthening within you. For you can only love Christ for who he is and what he's done. So we must understand what he's done. And we join the narrative here, and you know, all of you, the events of this narrative and this history that happened 2,000 years ago. We've been looking at Christ's life in our morning sermon series. And at this point, the opposition to the Lord has become so strong and so bloodthirsty that they actually they manipulate an arrest for Christ by the Romans. And the chief priests and the officers from the temple come and take Christ and they, they try him and they question him and they make up lies about him. He endures these trials as the beginning of his sufferings. From the moment that the ropes are put on his hands in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is the sin bearer. And he begins his suffering, first of all, by being treated as a criminal, and then everything that comes from that, being hit, being um, mocked by the Sanhedrin, being spat upon by some of the priests, being struck in the face, having his beard plucked out, and then handed over because they can't secure a guilty verdict, and they don't have the authority to secure that guilty verdict for the death penalty, they hand him over to the Romans, a brutal army with a, a system that could be brutal to people like Christ. And he is scourged and beaten and mocked and he has thorns pressed into his skull. These are the beginning of his sufferings. These are his physical sufferings, his partly emotional sufferings, and there is a spiritual element to them too, but on the surface they're mainly physical. We can see them clearly. These are very awful physical things to endure, to have the flesh torn from his back. Many people didn't survive that scourging that the Romans would give. Christ did survive it. Just. This is brutal. But it's nothing compared to what happens in our verses. As the Lord is taken um, up the hill to the place that is shaped like a skull and the priests and the ruling authorities of Israel finally have him and he is pinned and nailed to a cross by a group of soldiers whose job it is to execute people and he is raised up and hung with all his weight from a cross beam. The words we are looking at in verse 45 and 46, his saying in verse 46, is the fourth thing he said on the cross. There are seven sayings. The first three are that he asked forgiveness for his enemies, that he then turned to the thief next to him, the criminal who was converted on the cross and born again on the cross, he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And then he looks at his mother, who is looking on with John and some of the other women. And he commits his mother into the care of John. You'll see how, even in the midst of his physical agony, he is forgiving to the soldiers. He is saving someone next to him. And he is still looking after his mother. He's fulfilling all of these commandments, even in that condition. But after these three sayings, th things take a turn and rise high above these earthly considerations. With his concern for the soldiers who are only doing what they were commanded and don't know who he is, for the thief and for his mother. Something changes here at midday. And what happens at midday is that darkness falls on all the land. And I want us to understand something of that darkness. Three hours of darkness. Starting at noon. 
and then a loud, awful cry from the midst of that darkness. Now, why did it turn dark like this, and what kind of darkness is this? What does it mean? There may be a couple of natural aspects in this darkness. We don't know. It doesn't tell us, and we have to think about it carefully and sensibly and logically. Were there clouds? Was there an eclipse? Was there some kind of cosmic event that affected the light coming onto the world? Perhaps. But we do know, at least, that there is a miraculous working of the providence of God to bring this about. This is not um, a shadow or a cloudy day or anything like that. The Jews, including Matthew, including John and others, who knew of this account, who knew what had happened, they don't say it became dim or it became shadowy. They say there was a darkness that's so unusual it's worth mentioning. There were many times during the ministry of Christ, I'm sure, that as he spoke or as they traveled, that clouds came over them and it looked slightly gloomy. That's not what this is. A darkness fell upon the land and God made it so. And you'll see that it does fall on the land and that helps us understand what this may be. That the land of Israel is shrouded in darkness. The word for land there can mean the whole world or the land in which they are in. It's just the the same word we have for earth. We use earth in a lot of different ways. But at least the land of Israel is covered in darkness. And you'll remember that um, Israel, when she was in Egypt, when she observed the judgment of God coming against Egypt wave after wave, that the second last judgment was an unusual and unnatural darkness that shrouded Egypt as a message of the judgment of God before the firstborn were killed. And that gives us a key into knowing what this is, that they have rejected their Messiah. They have managed to to trap him and to secure the Romans doing this. And they think they've won. They think he's finished. They don't accept anything that he said, and even as he's hanging there, they're mocking his claims. But they rejected the one God gave them. They rejected the sent messenger and sent Messiah of God. And God will not leave it be. God will use his creation to communicate to the whole land that this is an evil thing that is being done. And that by doing it, they are securing their own destruction as a nation. And you'll know that destruction came one generation later when they were torn to shreds and their entire superstructure of their nation and all their families and all their children, everything was destroyed by the Romans in a savage attack. Darkness came on the land to show that God is displeased And that his judgment is upon what they're doing. And it does affect them. It does affect them. The darkness uh, comes on uh, the land and around the cross. And uh, he shrouds Christ. It, It affects their ability to see him fully. And it affects them. It startles them. And creates an uncomfortable fear in them as they are doing this at midday, and all of a sudden everything becomes very dark. The Lord made sure that it happened, but it does, um, it does communicate to us his judgment on Israel. You'll know that in the Bible, darkness is used in this way, and that the day of judgment always mentioned in the Bible is the day of the Lord. That is mentioned by most of the prophets, Isaiah, uh, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Joel, they all speak as they, as they graciously but firmly speak to the church in its bad condition and their need of a savior and their rejecting of that message. They're told by these prophets that the day of the Lord will come and it is a day of doom and a day of darkness. That Israel will not always bear the light. 
Israel will not always be in the light. And the nations around will experience this day of darkness too. And when that day comes, it is symbolized by the, the covering of the sun and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from heaven. A picture there of doom, of physical doom in the creation but there is a spiritual doom for them that that day will come and it comes in waves it comes in their day judgments come a judgment came in this day but the day of the Lord is still to come it will come at the very end we will all be present on the day of the Lord that darkness of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament gives us an insight into the fact that God is judging here. When he sends darkness on Egypt, it's because he's judging Egypt. When he sends darkness on the land here, it's because he's active in judgment. Now God is gracious. God is a saving God. God loves in a way that we could only hope to love others. But because of his holiness and his glory and his sight of sin in the world and their rejection of Christ, he comes in in a darkness to show that he is active in judgment. And everyone is present. Now Christ asked for the soldiers to be forgiven. When he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He was not speaking about the Sanhedrin. Only the Roman garrison that was there He said, forgive them, they don't know what this is. But these others ought to have known. And they all lived until 40 years later to see the most awful events in the history of Israel. So he's shrouding it in darkness because of that judgment. But there is something higher than this in these words and in this darkness. And even if the Lord is communicating something to Israel, the more important judgment that is being poured out here is not on Israel, but it's the judgment of the Son of God himself. That's what is happening here. This darkness and this cry that comes from the darkness happens because of the momentous event that is happening within the Trinity where the God the Father is punishing and judging God the Son. And therefore, a darkness is appropriate for it. What does this darkness mean in connection uh, to Christ? Let's try and understand three aspects of this darkness. The initial one is that the creation is communicating something because of what's happening. That God controls the creation and often uses it. Not only does he speak through his word, but he uses the physical creation so that we get the point and we get the message when only the word doesn't get through he uses his providence in controlling his creation to say something and in this as Christ suffers and we're going to see in a second exactly what that suffering was but as he suffers in this darkness for three hours it is only appropriate that God doesn't allow the place to be filled with light and for people to be going around their normal business But when the Son of God is experiencing something like this, how can the entire creation not be turned and dialed by God to say something about the fact that that is happening? And God uh, does that. He often communicates that way. You'll know, you'll see when we read in the passage that when the Lord dismissed his spirit and when he did achieve that the earth quaked and the rocks split 
there's another example of the creation reacting to what is happening to the Son of God. That it's so significant that he dies, that the earth must quake. You remember, you, you know your Old Testament. You read through that with that in mind, how often God makes the earth to quake, or the ground to open, or the lightning to flash, or the storm to come. You remember he used a storm to arrest Jonah. That's just one example. There are so many examples in Scripture of our spiritual numbness and inability to accept God's word that he often has to accompany it with something that will arrest our attention. And it's only appropriate that there's darkness that falls here because this isn't only a man. This is not only a prophet or a Jesus or even, in a way, a Messiah, as they understood it. But this is the Son of God. This is God the Son. Equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This is someone who in his person is eternal. This is someone uh, from whom all life and right flows from all eternity. This is someone who spoke and light came to be. And life came to be. Because the sun spoke, the earth teemed with life, and the sea teemed with life. And Adam and Eve's eyes and heart and veins were filled with life because of the word of the sun. And this unnatural event that jars against everything we know and that shouldn't be able to happen. How can someone who in his person is life and upon whom all other life depends, how can he be cast into suffering darkness and ultimately die? It's mysterious. And the Lord shrouds the land with darkness to show that something is happening within the councils of God and the Trinity that ought to amaze us. We read these things at home. We read these things in the worshipping assembly. And we read them, and sometimes they don't even affect us when we read them. Because we don't think about the truth of what's actually happening. And we ought to be amazed that the Son of God is here and that this is happening to him. And to amaze us and arrest our attention and arrest those around the cross, the darkness fell to say something dark is happening. Something that involves sin is happening. Something mysterious and awful is happening. And let it happen in the dark. Let it happen in the darkness and in the mystery and in the shadow of what God is doing to his Son. The light of the world, Jesus himself, is shrouded in darkness. So the creation is doing something. Also, secondly, there is a spiritual darkness that is attacking Christ. When darkness covers the land and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness is being put there, yes, as a, a, a general sign of judgment, but also because it, within that judgment the kingdom of darkness is very active. You'll know how close this kingdom was to the Lord. When he was baptized and he went into the wilderness to be surrounded by that kingdom to be tempted and tested. But throughout his ministry, in God's providence, we've seen a lot of these things in our morning series. Notice how close the kingdom of darkness is to the Lord at all points. When Peter confesses him finally as Lord, then Christ has to call him Satan, because Satan is present, and he is producing thoughts and reasonings in the mind of Peter. When he's in the synagogue in Capernaum and a large swathe of his disciples leave because they will not accept his message, he is aware that one of them is possessed by the devil himself. 
And on and on it goes. In the Last Supper, in the First Communion, as they sat at the table, Satan entered Judas. Satan had a seat at the table. And he had a seat in the mind of Peter and Andrew, James and John as they disputed about where they would sit and who was the greatest. And these are, that argument there, that's a little example. Judas is the more serious example. But as they, as he goes to the Sanhedrin, look how the grip of the evil one makes these men behave in a way that they would usually keep hidden or that was a besetting sin that they kept in check. These men were honorable men. They wore the robes and they, they, they ruled over Israel and they, they gave the doctrine and they taught the people. And if you saw these people in the street, they were very noble and they were respected. But look what happened to them in the weeks leading up to this and in the week of it, the, how a bloodthirsty instinct took hold of them. And the things they said and did and the mocking nature of the way that they treated the Lord Jesus Christ and, and around the cross itself as they pulled, the Psalms tell us that people were pulling faces at Christ and they mocked him. But this is nothing compared to what's going on in Christ's soul from 12 noon onwards. The devil may be present, but when this darkness falls, it's telling us that the devil has a work to do in attacking Christ. He is near. Christ said, the prince of this world cometh, and he has no part and finds nothing in me. Christ said to the Sanhedrin, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and the prince of darkness, very present. And they come to Christ on the cross. The Psalms show us that. But the clearest place that we know that Christ was assailed by Satan on the cross is in that very first gospel promise at the beginning of time. When um, God came to Adam and Eve and chastised them and set a judgment upon them. And he judged the serpent himself. On your belly you shall go and eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and this woman and between your seed, devil. You and all your seeds are going to be in constant enmity with her seed. And that's ultimately Christ. He shall crush your head and you shall bite or bruise his heel. That's what he told Satan in the beginning. And this is it. On the cross, with all the temptations that have led up to it, on the cross, the serpent comes, the devil comes to bite Christ and to inject his venom into Christ. He comes hearing this prophecy that troubles him. I'm going to get my head crushed. God told him that. But before I get my head crushed, I am going to bite him in his heel. So he is here. Whatever else is going on, Satan is biting Christ in this darkness as the prince of darkness. William Hendrickson, the New Testament commentator, says this, Hell came to Calvary that day. Spurgeon the powers of darkness in all of their dense and myriad battalions hurled themselves upon the Son of God at this moment. Professor Leahy again. Satan now mustered his legions for the final conflict. That's what's going on here. No wonder he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No wonder it's dark. This is Satan's Hour. This is his only chance to undo all of salvation. And he attacks the Son of God here to try and bring it apart like a house of cards. And Jesus must withstand it as Satan tempts him and blasphemes him and tries to influence his thoughts and tr tries to 
um, put his faith and his love and his sight of his Father in a vice and crush it and get Christ to think evil thoughts of the Lord and evil thoughts of what is happening. To try and get Christ to sin. You do not think it's Satan's mouth that says to him a few moments later, if he is the Son of God, let him come down from the cross. There's Satan. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from the temple. If you are the Son of God, make these stones bread. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He is at the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this darkness shows that the creation in its groaning knows in the hand of God that there is judgment happening against even the Creator Himself and the darkness is appropriate because the the aura of darkness and the atmosphere of darkness from that kingdom behind the scenes that are assailing Christ in His soul they are there like dogs and lions and bulls of Bashan and wild oxen surrounding him like a pack of dogs to impale him and devour him. But the darkness also reaches its height of meaning in what is happening between he and his father. It's God that sends the darkness and it's Christ that cries out to God in the darkness. And he does not call him Father. There is something happening between these two persons. And he does not call him Father. He said, Father, the hour has come. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And after it, he says, Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. But here, there is not a sight of anyone who we can call Father. The darkness may be connected to creation and the devil himself, but the height of the suffering that Christ is experiencing has something to do with his Father. And what's happening? He is the sin-bearer. And he is bearing those sins here. He cries out that he is forsaken because he, in a sense, is forsaken. And we'll see what that means in a second. Because he is bearing the sins of people who ought to be forsaken. We read in Isaiah, He shall bear their iniquities. He shall carry their sorrows. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Bible tells us he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's carrying something heavy and awful. And it's been laid on him by his father. There is a transfer happening here. Guilt is being transferred onto him. He is becoming a lamb and a substitute for his people. He is being made a curse. Paul says the most awful thing about it. He is being made sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why a thick darkness shrouding this from those around? Why a thick darkness like a curtain in the temple surrounding Christ like a holy of holies, so that no one may see fully what's going on inside. It's because Christ is doing something that only he can do, and no one can help him. And it must be between him and his Father, and all you and I can do is watch it happen. Watch it, and try and understand it, and believe in it. This 
although it's for us, this is not our place to trod in. This goes on between him and his father, and his father is making him the guilt of the church. The father is making him a curse. The father is making him to be sin. And when the transfer happens, and this is the gospel, the Lord Christ becomes personally liable and responsible for all and every sin that every elect person has thought or ever committed. Very much personally liable. An exact transaction. They become his sins. I'm saying that carefully. They, he, he takes ownership of them, though he never committed them and doesn't want them. But they become his responsibility. The Psalms tell us that when the Messiah thinks of this, he says, My sins are more than the hairs of my head. A body thou hast prepared for me, and it is written about me in the scroll. My sins have become more than the hairs of my head. He becomes guilt. He becomes sin. He becomes cursed and culpable and liable and responsible for receiving the punishment for sins. Actual thought and action sins that we are now connected to him by because we've lived and there are things we've done if we're in Christ that are here they were shrouded in darkness and he cried out my God, my God because he is personally responsible and paying for my sins and your sins if we are in him and that punishment leads us on to the next thing yes, he's sin bearer but he is the object of the punishment and wrath for those sins. I'm telling you there that he's bearing something terrible. That's only the, the beginning of it. He isn't just bearing the guilt and liability for these sins, but he's actually in this three hours of darkness and judgment. He is being judged and punished in that time for those sins. He doesn't just bear them. But he receives the punishment and wrath for them in these moments. And he looks to his father and he sees the judge. He looks to his father and he sees God. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. He looks at God And he can't see him in this moment with that distinct fatherly love. Because the father isn't looking at him in this sense as a son. He's looking at him as a sinner. He's looking at him as the one who is responsible for all of these sins. And we we need to bow down and worship at the side of this. that God the Father would pour out his wrath upon his Son so that I in my blindness and numbness and insensitivity, my own foolishness to never think it would be important to save myself, that God would take so much pity to do this, that's far above me and beyond me and I know almost nothing about, but he did it so that I wouldn't be lost so that I would never have to look God in the face in this kind of way because Jesus did it for me this is what Calvin says he is before the dreadful tribunal of God as judged as judge and the judge is here armed with inconceivable vengeance he is in the court And he is looking at the judge. And this judge is armed with vengeance for sin. That is our God. That is our God. 
and I'm not going to try and apologize for it or add ten comments to that to convince you that that's what he's like. If you are forcing him to be someone else, then he will deal with that in your own heart. But that's who he is. There is only one God. And death and hell must only exist because this is what he's like. There can be no other God. But look at the love, because Christ puts himself under it, and he receives punishment and anger and satisfaction from God the Father. It's real punishment. They're not, dis- they're not discussing something here. Christ is a recipient of whatever it is God is pouring out. And I can't tell you what it is. Only Christ knows what it is. I can't tell you how Christ can receive in his soul the extent and punishment for the sins of the entire church. I can't really tell you. I can tell you that I know it is the wrath of God, but I don't know what the wrath of God is because I've never seen it. And neither of you. There are people in hell that are seeing it now, but I have never seen it. But I know that the words wrath of God should make me stop in my tracks and seriously consider my life and condition before I got like this. He did it to his son here, punishing him for my sin. And that is why it pleased the Lord to crush him. Because God the Father loves you in Christ and me in Christ the love that intensely flows to you in adoption is the motivation that makes the wrath of God flow to Christ. Because he wills to save, he must pour his wrath somewhere. And he pours it on the sun. When Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can say, because... I don't have to call him my God, my God. I can say my father, my father loved me with an everlasting adopting love. Because he loved me with an adopting love, therefore, Christ must be forsaken. So he's a sin bearer, and he is the object of wrath under the judge, under our father, dealing with sin. As Christ is engulfed in this moment, with wrath there is no room for anything else in his being there is no room in his soul or mind to conceive of anything else in these three hours the only thing he knows in these three hours is the wrath of God it's all he feels it's all he can think it's all that he is aware of remember Christ has a human mind Even though he has a divine nature here, he's experiencing this in his human mind. And his human mind can only contain so much. And his soul is feeling the the death pangs, the, the painful lightning stripes of an almighty God against sin. He is the sin bearer, the object of wrath before the judge. I'm going to say one more thing here. Sin bearer, the object of wrath before this judge, but he is also forsaken, or he experiences a forsakenness. Yes, he's bearing sin. Yes, there is anger and wrath, but it it goes further. There's a little more we can say about this, because the wages of sin, the, the, the true thing we deserve because we are sinners, is to be utterly forsaken and rejected and desolate in the sight of God. Now when he says here, you have forsaken me, it's, the meaning isn't simple. He doesn't just mean that I have been abandoned, I've been left alone. We might think of it in the wrong way. But even if you think in a natural situation, 
um, that's not what it means. If, if you say that someone has forsaken their baby and they've left it in the parking lot of the hospital for someone else to deal with and take care, care of because they can't handle it, if they, if they leave their baby in a field somewhere, it's not just that they've left the baby alone. That's not the only part of the forsakenness. That child also must deal with all of the ramifications of that physically, they're in danger and all these things, and they'll grow up without their parents and know one day that their parents did reject them, like that. So the idea of forsakenness is not an idea that you just leave someone alone. If I leave you alone, I'm not forsaking you. If you're forsaken, it means that the person is doing it. When God forsakes someone, they are cursed. They are told by God, I want nothing more to do with you. You are rejected. You are ugly and despised in my sight. You are a worm. And for God even to forsake someone is to remove all of his goodness and benefits from them. When God forsakes someone, people say, I'll I'll enjoy hell because God will leave me alone. Or on the day of judgment, I'll be left alone. Or I enjoy my life because God is leaving me alone. God doesn't leave us alone. And then we can continue to produce our own happiness. God is the source of all joy, light, goodness, life. Everything that is good that exists is flowing to you from God. For God to forsake someone means that they will lose all good, all light, and all life. Anything that you could call saying that's alive. When someone is forsaken by God, they are spiritually dead, cut off. They'll never see or experience even an atom of goodness ever again. And God is making his son to experience something here that's comparable and equivalent to that. For the wages of sin is death. What did, it, what did God say to man? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. And the punishment that we receive progressively, but ultimately for sin, is that we will be utterly lost. We will go to hell. And we, we will be basically demons. We will be pure evil. We will not see or experience any good ever again. We will not smile. We will not laugh. We will not ever know what contentment might even be or the possibility of it. We will be hopeless, destitute, in agony and despair, and the most intense grief that we can imagine. People get depressed in this world. It's awful to be depressed. It's unbearable to be depressed. But there's still goodness somewhere. Not in hell. Not in the wages of sin. The wages of sin are utter desolation and forsakenness. And to to redeem me and redeem you, that's where we were meant to go. To get us away from that, Jesus experiences something here that is equivalent to it. It's mysterious. He's an eternal person in a human nature on a cross for three hours, but there's something happening in his soul that must be the equivalent to a lost eternity. The Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell on the cross. We don't believe he physically went to hell, but he is experiencing hell. He knows what it means to be forsaken and lost for, for a time. To find no comfort or joy or light in his mind and soul coming from God. God withholds that from him. Comforters found I none. I roar and you do not answer. I am desolate and put to grief. No wonder he, he is in this. He, he Let's connect that as we close to the darkness. The darkness that falls here. Let's connect that to the outer darkness. That's how hell is described. It is 
an outer darkness. It is a place where from the ninth until the sixth hour, or for all eternity, there is only darkness. And Christ is in that darkness. He is experiencing it in his soul. And he cries out from that darkness, from being far away and experiencing a kind of hell, from the depth of a mine shaft, from a pit. He cries out the only thing he can cry out, God, God. Do something about this. God, he cries out. Awfully, those who are in hell, they will never be able to cry this. They can never cry by faith from the darkness to ask God to help them. Christ cries here by faith and it is the greatest prayer ever uttered because of the extremity and the the unlikelihood of the fact that he would pray from this darkness. Those in hell will never be able to do this. They just wail and gnash their teeth and they are filled with hatred and anger towards God. Christ does none of that. He is experiencing a hell but he is still by faith, trusting in God, because he's sinless. Only Christ could do this for us. Only Christ could pay the price. Only Christ could receive the wrath. Only Christ could be forsaken for you and I, and actually go to the place that you and I deserve, and to withstand its horrors, and come out the other side, so that you and I never will have to. He is utterly unique. So there is, my friend, um, something of what this darkness means in the creation, in the kingdom of darkness, and what is passing between the Father and the Son. I want to quote a minister to you before we go to the table. John Duncan from Edinburgh, Scotland, 18th, 1800s. A profound theologian who taught Hebrew at the Free Church College. And when his students asked him, why did Christ cry this? He said, this was damnation taken lovingly. He was damned to hell. And he took it lovingly for your sake and my sake. May the Lord uh, bless these thoughts um, to our minds and souls this morning. I could ask uh, Mr. Reed uh, to come up and lead us in prayer as we approach the table.